Before we start this morning, uh, one thing I did overlook meant to mention earlier, uh, about last weekend, I think it was, uh, Sister Geneva Lillard down in Franklin, Tennessee, passed away. She was the widow of Elder Milton Lillard, who pastored in that area for a long, long time, many, many years. Many of the people here in the church knew Brother Milton and uh, his faithful service to the Lord over those years, and Sister Geneva has always been a very faithful member and follower of the Lord. And she was in her 90s. I'm not sure exactly her exact age, but she was in her 90s. She lived a long and very fruitful life. And uh, if somebody can say that about you after you pass this scene of life, I don't know of anything better they could say about you. And your life was very fruitful, and hers certainly was. Last weekend, last Sunday, I spoke to you from Acts 2.42. I'd like to go back there this morning. In Acts 2.42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Uh, four very essential things here for the health of any church is that they, and we established that the they had reference to the disciples of that day, which started out to be about 120 in Acts chapter 1, followed by about 3,000 in Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost. So we have about 3,120 disciples who are now forming the church at Jerusalem, uh, following the Lord, and they continued steadfastly. We emphasized those two words last Sunday. They continued. It's important to continue in the things of God. We can get sidetracked. We can get thrown off course so easily, like a ship that's going from point A to point B, from one port to another, can run into a severe storm on the ocean and veer off course. But once the storm is gone, they need to get the ship back on the original course it was on so it can complete its journey. Has that been your experience in life? Have there been things from time to time that's caused you to veer, caused you to get sidetracked? It's very easy for that to happen, but the most important thing is that you recognize it and that you get back on course and get back on the course you're supposed to be on. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, he said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the higher calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a mark out there. The Bible's given us a mark, you know, something to look at, something to march toward, to walk toward, to run toward, to move toward. Never what pace the Lord is moving us. But we keep our eyes on that mark. And I believe that mark is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We tried to establish the fact that the doctrine that they upheld was that of the apostles. And the doctrine of the apostles was the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20, Jesus said to his disciples just before he left, he said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's the doctrine of Christ he gave to the apostles. Notice, they were not to teach more than that, and they were not to teach less than that. But all things here means all things that Jesus Christ commanded those apostles. They now are commissioned of the Lord Jesus Christ to preach those things which should result in people believing the gospel, obeying the Lord, following the Lord, and being baptized in the name of the three-in-one Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that's what the Apostles' Doctrine is. And we went into some details of that last Sunday. But there's three other things here they continue steadfastly in. One was fellowship. One was the breaking of bread. And the other was prayers. 
my burden this morning to speak to you on the last one. They continue steadfastly in prayers. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. The word prayer or prayed, some form of that word, is in there 28 times. It's found in 17 books, excuse me, 17 chapters of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts. By studying this and looking at these different references, it should impress upon our minds how important prayer is. Now, I'm amazed that this word prayer is something, no doubt, that is probably the most familiar word in the Bible. It's probably prayer. Certainly one of them, not the most familiar word in the Bible. And it's stressed on a regular basis of its significance and its importance. But I'm also convinced that people, a lot of people, use prayers like the spare wheel in a car. It's there. It comforts you know you got it. And if you have to use it, you can use it. But the only time you think about it is when you have a tire to go flat. There are people who pray when they're in trouble. There are people who pray when they're sick. There are people who pray when they're very confused. But other than that, they don't seem to think too much about it. I've said to you in the past that prayer, of course, is a daily thing. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, pray without ceasing. If you pray without ceasing, you'll pray in a lot of other circumstances than what I've just mentioned to you. You should pray at least five times a day. It should be a prayer when you get out of the bed in the morning to thank the Lord for a night's rest and ask him to guide you through another day and to pray what the Lord said in Matthew 6, give us this day our daily bread. And then we should pray when we eat our meals. That's three meals a day. The last time I checked, everybody's pretty much a habit of doing that. Breakfast, lunch, and supper. To thank the Lord for the food he's provided. And then when we lay down at night, to thank the Lord for answering our prayer from the morning. He gave us our daily bread. He gave us protection. And here we are now at the end of the day, and we got a bed to lay down on a pillow under our heads. So I believe at least five times. In the book of Psalms 55, verse 22, David said, I pray at noon, in the evening, and in the morning. He established three times that he prayed. You go to Daniel chapter 6, you'll find where Daniel opened up the windows toward Jerusalem and prayed three times a day. So prayer was a part of Daniel's life. Prayer was a part of David's life. If you study the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find that prayer was very essential, very important in the life of the Son of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. If it was important to Jesus, how much more important should it be to us, you see? Well, we have many wonderful promises concerning prayer. Ephesians 3.20, unto him, uh, now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. Now, the word prayer is not used there, but the word ask, it simply means that. Everything we ask or think, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, above that. Well, what we think and what we say. 1 John 5 and 14, he says, this is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, and that's an essential part of prayer is to know the will of God. If you don't know his will, you're not going to have a fervent prayer life. This is the confidence we have in him. Not the confidence you have in me or in you or in yourself or man, but this is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know if he heareth us, then we know we have the things or the petitions that we have asked of him. How much more positive can you get than that? that that's, that's the formula that God has given us. Jesus said, ask, you shall receive, knock, it shall be open. 
Uh, he certainly is talking about prayer. We're to seek, we're to knock, and we're to ask. And notice the shalls. He that uh, whosoever asketh shall receive. He shall knock, it shall be opened. Uh, it's a shall there. It's just as strong a shall as Matthew one twenty one, When the angel told Joseph that Mary shall conceive and bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We believe that shall means exactly what it said. He shall save his people. He saved his people, just like the angel said. Now we can go in that direction, but I want to take a look in the book of Acts here uh, in several different areas to show how important it was. Now, the first time it's, uh, we find uh, prayer is in the first chapter of Acts, and it's there about verse 19 to 20. It's where those about 120 disciples have gathered at a large upper room, and you find the, the 11 of the 12 apostles, Judas is no longer with them. Then you find the women who are not named, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brethren, and it said they continued, they continued in prayer and one accord, uh, continued one accord with prayer and supplication. The word accord here is not talking about Honda. Now I've heard a joke, I'm sure you have too, what kind of car did the apostles drive in their day? It was a Honda Accord. But uh, that's a little corny joke. Uh, but anyway. We find they were in one accord. They were in accord, it just wasn't a Honda Accord, okay? That word accord literally means unanimous. They were unanimous. We got about 120. How hard do you think it is to get 120 people all to agree on the same thing? Well, they were in agreement. They were unanimous. They continued in one accord with prayer, a supplication of the Spirit. That word accord occurs seven times the time you get to chapter 15. Seven different times you're going to find where they're in one accord. We look over in the second chapter, and you're going to find that chapter ends with them being in Jerusalem, going into the temple to worship, and they were of one accord. At this time, it's 3,120 or about, and the Bible keeps saying they're in one accord. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, tells us that we're to be of one accord, esteeming one another higher than ourselves. That means we are to always labor and pray for unity and harmony. We need to be one accord in the church. We need to be of one accord in our homes, in our families. Marriages, husbands, wives need to be of one accord it, it can be there. If it wasn't, the Bible wouldn't teach us along those lines. We should be of one accord in the nation, but obviously we are uh, 180 degrees from that, right? At least that far. We are way apart from being one accord in our country, unfortunately. But let's just talk about ourselves. Let's talk about the family. Let's talk about the church. They are in one accord. And also I find that word used four times in the book of Acts in reference to the enemy of the church. One example is in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen finished his great declaration of truth given the history of the Jewish people ending when they had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and said they were cut to the heart and they rushed upon him with one accord. They were unanimous in that. With one accord they rushed upon him. You'll find three other references in the book of Acts. You can be assured of this. Your three enemies that you have in life which is the world, the devil, and your human nature, your flesh, are always in one accord. You'll find them united. You'll find the world 
Satan and your human nature will always be in harmony with each other as they stand in opposition to you as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to be of one accord, right? Need to be of one accord. It reminds me so much of Psalms 133. Beautiful Psalm. Said how, how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant it is. Now, the opposite of a tree when there's not unity. It's not pleasant. It's not good. How good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head, even the head of Aaron that ran down his beard, down his garments, down to his feet. Aaron was the first high priest, and he was anointed with oil as he occupied that office. And he says, it's just like, it's like the dew of Hermon, okay? The dew of Hermon upon the mountain of Zion, the blessing which the Lord commanded. Now, Hermon and Mount Zion, one and the same. He says, like the dew from heaven that comes down upon it. Now, dew is an interesting thing to me. When it dews at night, you don't hear it. You don't see it. You just, it's just there. You know, you, you go out in the morning and the grass is wet as wet can be. And it seemed like to me grass is even wetter in dew than it is. You've got to rain during the night. It's just, and it just appears. But it's a blessing of God. He said that's the way it is when brethren dwell together in unity, being of one accord, being unanimous. Now the church should be unanimous. And there's two ways that you're unanimous. One, just everybody is on the same page. Everybody agrees this is what we need to do, you know. But that's not always the case in the beginning. Sometimes there may be a difference of opinion. And some are in favor of this and maybe some are not. And you have a vote. And this is the second way you become unanimous. You will normally have a majority and a minority. And the minority should then conform to the majority, making it unanimous. That's the way it should be. Now, somebody says, well, what if it's 50-50? Well, if you've got exact number this way, exact number that way, then I would suggest you table it and go back to prayer until you can form a majority and make it unanimous one way or the other. But the minority should always agree with the majority moving forth unless it should be something essential that somebody has got enough following in the church to try to lead us astray. Now, hopefully that will never be the case here. But if that should happen, then the minority should not make it a majority. They should stand for principle and stand for truth and stand for what's right. The disciples here were of one accord. They were together. They were united. They were in harmony. And they had peace. And chapter 2 ends up by saying they was in the temple, breaking bread, eating their bread with gladness and singing in his heart. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. The word saved there, as always, means deliverance. Has nothing to do with heaven here. Not eternity, it's under consideration. It's talking about the gospel church. Getting them to understand that the law was fulfilled to a jot and to a tittle in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. During that time, he established his church here in this world. And the gospel is a very important part of it. And baptism is a very important part of it. And those who understood that, understood that, and was among that about 3,120, make up the first church on this earth, which is the church at Jerusalem. Now chapter 3 starts out. But Peter and John going up to the temple to pray together. We notice this. Peter and John went up together 
to the temple to pray. When I think of that word together, and I've preached on this as a subject, Lord, and I probably will again down the road here. But when I think of that word together, I think of that word together in two different ways. I think of that word together, like Peter and John, literally, physically, were together. But they were also together in another way. They were together because they were going to the temple, to the same place to do the same thing, which was to have prayer at the hour of prayer. Notice, there was a specific hour designated for prayer. And the Bible says it was about the ninth hour, which makes it about 3 p.m. in the day. The Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. in the morning. Like the third hour of the day, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter started to speak, uh, that was about 9 a.m. in the morning. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross between the third hour and the ninth hour. It's between 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. The Jewish day starts at 6 a.m. in the morning, so it'd be a different hour than the hours that we, we start at 12 a.m. at night. So they went up together. Now, people came to church this morning together. I look out here and I see couples together. That's wonderful. I see people who came here together. Now, the next question is, were you, were you together when you got here? Were you together in your mind? Were you together in your heart? Were you together for why you're here? Did you have a good, harmonious conversation on the way here this morning? I have seen people who got out of the car together, and I could tell right off the bat, <laughs> they weren't together. Oh, I've seen that more than once. I don't know what they talked about on the way to church, but it, 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 when they got out, they weren't together. So we want to be together, and we want to be together. Is that not right? So Peter and John go up to the temple together, and they're together. Very important to be together and together. Now, what makes you together? If you're not together, you need to get together. And the way to get together is with prayer. And once you get together, the way to stay together is with prayer. Remember that. Prayer will get you together and prayer will keep you together. A lack of prayer will not. When people stray from the things of God, when they stray from the church, their prayer life goes downhill fast. It doesn't make any sense in the world to me to think that if you're walking contrary to the commandments of God and contrary to the will of God, that you're going to really have a good, fervent prayer life with the Lord. It's hard to talk to the Lord when you know you're in rebellion. It's hard to talk to the Lord when you know you're being disobedient. It's hard to talk to the Lord when you know you're to be in the house of God and you have deliberately and purposely not shown up. And you're going to pray to the Lord knowing you should be in the Lord's house. And you're going to talk to the Lord, and you're on that fishing bank, you're on that golf course, <laughs> you're out mowing that grass, whatever it might be, if you could be in the house of God and you've chosen not to, don't tell me you're anxious to talk to the Lord about it. I know better, and you do too. They went up to the house of God at the hour of prayer. They went up together, and on this occasion, Peter and John, they were still together. I read a little bit later on where Paul and Barnabas, who had been together, are not together anymore. And I don't want to stray away too much here this morning on that. But they finally got together later on. Now, they went up there together. And the Lord blessed them as they were going up there because there was a lame man. And the lame man was asking alms of the people. But Peter said, silver and gold have I none. Notice here. Peter, an apostle, said, I don't have any silver and I don't have any gold. 
But as much as I have, give I unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And God blessed that man to receive strength in his ankle bones. And he stood up and he leaped. He began running. <laughs> I remember when I was over there in the Bible land in 1999 and we were in that area where the East Gate was. I followed this chapter. I followed this man. And I just, I could just see it in my mind. You know, uh, like a, 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 you know, the old movies we had the reel up there putting the movie up on. I could just see him uh, in my mind running right there in front of me. <laughs> I couldn't see him physically, you know, literally, but I could see him right up here. I sure could. Leaping and praising God. And that's what every one of us ought to be doing after we understand and recognize how, God, how great God's been to us and how good God's been to us, you see. Then we go back there to Acts chapter 1 just for a moment. And we'll find where, again, they were in one accord praying with all prayer and supplication. And they had a very important work to do right here. Because the apostles brought up the situation where in the Psalms it had been recorded that one of them would depart, that was Judas Iscariot, but another should take his place. And so they want to fulfill that command. So we find that they set aside two and then they prayed to the Lord about it. And they said, Lord, which of these two hast thou chosen? For thou knowest the hearts of all men. We notice before they made a decision which one it shouldn't be, they prayed to the Lord about it. Now, I, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I, I kind of think they prayed later than they should have. They should have prayed even earlier. They got it down to the two. But nevertheless, we find before the work is completed, they pray and they say, Thou knowest the hearts of all men. And we find where Matthias is chosen to take the place of Judas Iscariot. Important work of the church. But before doing it, they prayed about it. I come to Acts chapter 13. In the opening verses of this chapter, we come to something that happened to the church in Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, you're going to find where the Holy Ghost spoke to those at Antioch to separate Barnabas and Paul to the work that I've appointed them. And it says, when they had prayed and fasted. And that's another thing you will notice if you pay attention in the book of Acts. The word fast goes right along with the word pray. We are under no command in the New Testament to fast, but it's not a bad practice. It certainly was a biblical practice in that day. So they prayed and they fasted. To, to fast means you abstain from something that you like doing or whatever, and you abstain from it. It could be different types of fasting. And they fasted and they prayed, and then they laid their hands on Barnabas and, and Paul, and they went on their way. Notice, before this work is done here by the church at Antioch, they fasted and they prayed about it. In the very next chapter, chapter 14, you will find where they are now going back to places they had been where they had preached the gospel in the past, going back to places where uh, they had ordained, uh, where they had organized churches. And it says, and they ordained elders in every city. And when they did that, it says they fasted and they prayed. And those churches in that day, it was not uncommon to have multiple elders in the church. But before Matthias is chosen, before Barnabas and Saul is set aside, and before they ordain elders in every church, there was fasting and there was prayer. Remember the text. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. You're going to find prayer to be a very, very important thing all the way through the scriptures.
prayer, we're going to see how prayer is an evidence of a gracious state. We come over to Acts chapter 10, and there's a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. If you study Acts 8, 9, and 10, you're going to find in Acts chapter 8, Samaritans. Uh, You're going to find in Acts chapter 9, Paul. And you're going to find in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. Now, back in chapter 8, you're going to find a eunuch. Now, the reason I mention that is this. When the flood was over, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the entire world was repopulated from these three sons. In Acts 8, 9, and 10, you see descendants of these three sons. You see the eunuch. He was a descendant of Ham. The eunuch will be baptized in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 9, you're going to find Saul of Tarsus, a descendant of Shem. He's going to be baptized in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 10, you're going to have to find Cornelius, who is a descendant of Japheth. And he's going to be baptized. You've got descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth in Acts 8, 9, and 10. Now, we go to 10. And we talk about Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, a descendant of Japheth. And you're going to find six things said about this man that tells me he was a born-again child of God before he ever hears the gospel by the apostle Peter and before he's ever baptized. It says he was a devout man. The word devout means godly, devoted. It says he was a man who feared God with all of his house. That's an evidence of a gracious state. Romans chapter 3, describing the human nature, a man says there's none that feareth God. No, not one. They fear not God. Here's a man who fears God. The unregenerate does not fear God. The wicked do not fear God. But the born-again child of God has a reverential feeling within his heart and soul toward God. He was a devout man, a godly man. The wicked and the evil are not godly, they're ungodly. He's a devout man. He's a man who fears God. He's a man who gives alms to the people. A compassionate man, a charitable man. And it says he was a man who prayed to God always. The unregenerate do not pray. Prayer is a communication line from your heart right into glory. It's a communication line from your heart right into heaven. You can pray to God 24-7. Aren't you happy about that? Have you ever got a busy signal? Have you ever got line out of order? Have you ever got, uh, well, we're having heavy volume today. You reckon God has heavy volume? I suspect he does, don't you? Even right now as I speak, I imagine God's got heavy volume from his children all around this world that are praying to him. But you don't have to wait till that volume comes back, goes down. You know, at least it got now where you can type in your number and they'll call you back later, hopefully. That's what I always do. And if you don't have that, I just put my speaker on and I get my Bible out. And I don't try to, I, I try not to waste that time. I try to read my Bible. I do it every time. Read my Bible. While I'm waiting on them to get back to me and I can get 20 and 30 minutes of good reading in most of the time. But anyway, aren't you glad you don't have to worry about heavy volume? I know God's got heavy volume, but that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. The wicked and the unregenerate and the evil do not pray. Child of God prays from his heart. Let's go to Acts chapter 9 and look at what Jesus uh, said unto, or God said unto uh, to, to Ananias concerning Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul has had a 
and experienced on the Damascus Road that we're given details about in the first part of Acts chapter 9. He was on the way to Damascus in the beginning, I believe, as an unregenerate person who had his sight set on arresting God's people and bringing them back to Jerusalem about 130 miles. He went 130 miles because he despised those who were following Jesus Christ, had a hatred for them, and he consented to the death of Stephen, gave approval and death of others, and he's on his way there to continue persecuting the Lord's people. But the Lord strikes him down the Damascus Road. Changes his life. And now he tells him to go on to Damascus, just like you're intending to do. But there will be a man by the name of Ananias there who will show you and tell you what things thou ought us to do. The Lord now is working with Ananias. He tells Ananias about Saul, and Saul, Ananias says, Lord, he says, I know all about this man. I've heard it may be 130 miles away, but news travel fast in that day. And the news was Saul of Tarsus was a great persecutor of the Lord's church. So the Lord says unto Saul, unto Ananias concerning Saul, he said, fear not, Ananias, for he's a chosen vessel unto me. That's number one. Then number two, he says, behold, he prayeth. Behold, he prayeth. Now, Saul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the son of a Pharisee. You know what Pharisees did when it come to prayer? They stood on the street corners. And the Lord in the book of Matthew brings that to our attention. They stood on the street corners. And they prayed long prayers of repetition to be seen of men. They wanted men to think they were really pious. Men uh, wanted men to think that they were really godly and lived close to the Lord. But the Lord called them hypocrites. No doubt Saul of Tarsus had prayed just like that in the past. As far as uttering words on the street corner. But now if the Lord told Ananias, behold, he prayeth. The Lord knows what prayer is. The Lord knows what condition the heart is. You go to Psalms 34, you'll find where the Lord said that he is nigh to them of a contrite uh, uh, spirit and nigh to them of a broken heart. And he says he will revive the heart of the contrite and he will revive the spirit uh, of, of the brokenhearted. God is looking upon the heart. Is that heart broken? Is it a contrite heart? Contrite spirit. The word contrite means that you are knowledgeable and you are aware in your heart and soul that you're a sinner. That's what it means. So I've said a number of times before, I can talk to you about sin. I can preach to you about sin. I can tell you about the origin of sin, original sin. I can tell you all the different uh, things categorized as sin, one thing or another. But if God hadn't taught you in your heart what sin is, it's just words that roll right off like a duck's back. Water on a duck's back, right? Only God can teach you that you're a sinner. Oh, I can teach you from the scripture you're a sinner. But only God can teach you to understand and recognize and really feel and know, <laughs> Brother Lawrence, you got me pegged. I, I am a big sinner. I'm not just a sinner. I'm a big old sinner. <laughs> Anybody want to confess you're a big old sinner here this morning? <laughs> I imagine we're all big old sinners, don't you? Behold, he prayeth. That's the evidence of sonship. When you find a praying man, you'll find a harmless man. You find me a, a praying man from his heart. You just show me somebody I can walk with. I won't be afraid of him. I won't be scared of him. If he's a praying man, that means he's a God-fearing man. That means he's been born of the Spirit of God. And he and I can find something that we can uh, connect on. You know what I mean? So we see how prayer is used here in the book of Acts to show sonship. 
Now, we'll come over here to the 16th chapter in the book of Acts. And you'll find where the apostle Paul was going to go into Asia. That was his mind to go to Asia. But the Holy Spirit forbid him to go. He then was going to go to a place called Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit suffered him not. That means he didn't have the peace of mind. He didn't have the feeling inside. There's something saying, I, I, this is where I want to go, but somehow or another, I don't think I need to go. That's how God works with us. You've got to pay attention, though. When God's talking, you've got to pay attention. How many times are you talking to somebody in the, in the room? And you say, are, are you paying attention? <laughs> it's hard for me to believe you're paying attention with those earbuds in your ears. I mean, they can be there and you can be five feet from them. You've got to holler. You've got to shake them. They're even letting them realize you're even talking to them. Right? You know I'm right. People don't talk more. They text. I've seen two people in the elevator texting each other. That's right. That's the truth. Standing four feet from each other and they're texting one another. I don't know what would happen if their hands got chopped off. They'd be in bad shape, wouldn't they? So we got to pay attention when the Lord's talking to us. So Paul was. And so Paul just stays right where he's at. That's good advice. I give that to anybody. And that night, the Lord appeared to him in a vision. And there was a man in that vision who said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And Luke is with Paul at this time. And Luke says, and when we saw the man in the vision saying to the Macedonian, help us, we feel assuredly that the Lord was in the matter. That's a wonderful feeling. When you reach that point where you can feel like, I, I believe the Lord has shown me. I have assurance. And it says they took a straight course. And I like the word straight here because the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? So they took a straight course and they got there to Macedonia. And the Bible says they were in the city several days. So for a few days, it appears to me they didn't really know why they were there. But then they decided to go out to the riverside where a prayer was wont to be made. I want you to visualize the scene. They went out to the riverside where a prayer was wont to be made. They felt like they needed to pray and they got out of the city of the hustle and the bustle. And they went out by the riverside. I can just view it now. The water flowing gently. Quietness. All you hear is the chir chirping of the birds. Maybe the water as it trickles down the stream. It's quiet. You have some serenity. Not many places left like that anymore, is it? No wonder the Lord said when you pray, enter into your closet, Right? You need a place where you can get away. Where you can get away from the hustle and the bustle of this life here. And spend some quality time with the Lord. And so they went by the riverside where prayer was what to be made. And it said there were some women there who resorted there. And one of those women has a name that's given to us by the name of Lydia. Her name is Lydia. And the Bible says that the Lord opened her heart that she might attend to the things that Paul spoke. Now we notice the order here. Her heart was opened before she ever heard Paul. 
Her heart was opened up. The Lord, who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart. Providentially, the Lord opened up her heart. I don't think he's talking here about regeneration. I think he's talking about the, uh, in the area of providence. That God opened her heart that she might attend to the things that were spoken of Paul. And when she heard those things, the Bible says she was baptized here in her household. What about the other women? Doesn't say anything about them. Only identifies one of those that resorted there for prayer. She met there for worship. She was a, from Thyatira, the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple. And she was there with the other women at the seaside where prayer was wont to be made. She worshiped God. And the Lord opened her heart. If you feel like the Lord's opened your heart in times past where you can see the truth and understand salvation by the grace of God, you're one of the most fortunate and blessed people upon the face of this earth. When you truly understand it's all of God and not part God and part me, when you understand it wasn't me that took a step toward God, I was dead and trespassing and sin, couldn't move at all, but it was God who came to me. It was God who drew me. The Lord has opened your heart where you understand that. You're, you're highly blessed. I'm telling you that now. And you've got reason to shout for joy. That's the evidence you've been born of the Spirit of God. And you see the, the beauty, my friends, of grace. It's salvation of the Lord from beginning to end, from first to last. Aren't you glad it's not some kind of combination? If it was, we'd all be doomed. She attended to the things that Paul spoke. I was thinking about some of those things. What what those things were? We're not really told. But I know one thing. <laughs> when I read Luke 135, I read about a holy thing. When the angel tells uh, Mary that she's going to conceive in that holy thing, this morning of thee shall be called the Son of God. The power of the high shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing, Jesus Christ, is referred to here as a holy thing. I imagine Paul preached about the holy thing, don't you? I just got a feeling right here. <laughs> I just got this feeling in my heart that Paul, when he preached, he talked to her about Jesus. Maybe he talked about his own experience out of Romans chapter 7 when he says, For I say unto you, that is in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. People need to understand there's no good thing in you. There isn't. In your human nature, there's no good thing in you. But God himself is good, and he born you the Spirit of God. Then there's something good in you, but prior to that, in my flesh dwelling no good day. Maybe he talked to her about that. Maybe he told her about Romans 8, 33, where Paul says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who can lay anything? Maybe he talked to her about the anything. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Maybe he talked to her about that thing. Maybe he talked to you about the thing over in Romans chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul establishing the sovereignty of God compares God's sovereignty unto a potter. A potter can make one vessel an honor, he can make another vessel unto dishonor. And he says, Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, What doest thou? No, it does not. Has a vessel ever looked at the potter and said, well, I wanted to be red, you made me blue. Has the potter ever said anything to the potter? I want to be a four foot high, maybe a foot and a half. The potter, the potter never said anything to the potter, does it? The potter is sovereign in this matter, and here we find where God, it's a reference to God. God is the potter, and God has made you. And you have no right whatsoever to say, Why did you make me thus? 
Maybe talk to her about that thing. I, we could talk about a lot of things here. <laughs> a lot of things. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Maybe he told her that. Whatever he told her, she gave attendance to it. I mean, she was wide awake and alert. She gave attendance to the things that he spoke. And part of that, I know, had to do with baptism. If you preach baptism to her, he had to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ to preach baptism to her. And she and her household were baptized. And she said, if you've counted me faithful to the Lord, if you, Paul, have counted me, Lydia, faithful to the Lord, then come into my house. And she constrained us. And they entered into the house. This all started when they went out to the riverside for a prayer was wont to be made. You need to have a riverside somewhere in your life. You never know who you might meet by the riverside. <laughs> I love meeting here with you folks. I sure do. I think this is one of the little riversides to me. You know, Karen and I were eating out the other day and there was another couple sitting close enough to us we got in conversation. And he was telling me how he lived in every place you think of around Nashville one time or another. Currently lives down at Cookville. And I learned a lot about this man in a short period of time. You don't have to give people too long. They'll tell you the life story. But anyway, he was familiar with Goodlitzville and everything. You know, when I, when I tell people I'm from Goodlitzville, a lot of times they say, Goodlitzville, that's a nice name. <laughs> he said, I used to go to, and I'm not going to call the name of it, it's not too far from here, that direction, about five miles, and said, I used to go to church there. And I'm going to tell you what, they got a great band. Did you preach there? I'm out of preaching. Fellowship? Singing? They got a great band. That's all he said. So okay, good. <laughs> we don't have a great band called we don't have a band. I thought this morning, boy, I'm glad we don't have a musical instrument to mess up all that good singing we had this morning. It was beautiful, wasn't it? It was spiritual, it was lively, it was beautiful. I believe it was God honoring. Now, prayer was very important in the life of Lydia, wasn't it? I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to read this to you, because I, I, I want you to get the scene. To me, it's one of the most touching scenes in the Bible. In Acts chapter 1, we're going to find where Paul goes and calls the elders of Ephesus to him. Of course, Ephesus is uh, where the church was, where the book of Ephesians was written. Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, and the apostle John wrote a letter to the Ephesians. And now he calls the elders of Ephesus to him. And he says, you know how, when I first got here, what manner of man, man I was in all seasons. You know, so we have spring, we have summer, we have fall, we have winter. And the natural seasons, but in our lives we have seasons. But we're to be the same in any season. Paul wasn't one way in one season, another way in another season. You know how manner of man I've been among you in all seasons. Paul told Timothy to preach the gospel be instant in season and out of season. Sometimes you're in season, sometimes you're out. But as a gospel minister, you've got to preach either way. Then he says, I serve God with all tears and humility and temptations. He says in verse 20, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you publicly from house to house. 
Verse 22, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Verse 24, But none of these things move me, neither count I myself, my life dear unto myself, so I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He said, I'm going there. I'm going to give testimony of the good news and glad tidings of the gospel of God. If my life is taken, my life is taken. I go bound in the Spirit. Then he says in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul was a faithful man of God. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves to the flock of which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The church has been purchased and now you're to feed it. They come over here to verse 35. I've showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, now let's get the picture. I want you to get the picture. I want this in your mind as I read these next couple of verses. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorry most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. Isn't that a beautiful scene? A lovely scene where this man of God loved the people of God so much at Ephesus. When he got ready to go, they knelt down together. They were together and they prayed and there was weeping. They fell on the neck of Paul. I just see it now, can't you? How they just wrapped their arms around him and, and squeezed him in two and sorry most of all for the words that they should see his face no more. That means that's the last time he was ever going to see him. That's the last time they're ever going to see him. But I can tell you this, my dear brothers and sisters, there's coming a time when we will see them again. There's coming a time when we will see our brothers and sisters in Christ, our loved ones. It's a place called heaven. We'll be there and we'll see them in all eternity. There'll be no sad farewells there. There'll be no sorrows there. This scene ends with them all together and they were together. And they are praying, and they're weeping, and they're falling on the neck of Paul, sorrowing most of all for the words that they would see him no more. There's a couple other scenes I'd thought about going to, but I think this would be a good place to close out.